Awesome. I would expect no less for you guys to just say hello back. Um, <laughs> just goes, uh, started with the seating arrangements and it keeps going, Ramsey. Um, anyway, how are we doing? Okay. One. <laughs> this is, this is just, uh, all right. Um, well, thanks for coming. Uh, I just was going to ask a question. Are we, we recovered from family weekend? Have we? Is that what's making everybody so uh, d- down the, the bottom here? Or is it just you guys love that I love awkwardness and that this is really just, this is what I do. Um, those who don't know me, I'm Sid Drew, and I'm the campus minister for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, which is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve Davidson campus and to serve you all, whoever and wherever you are. Um, what that really means is that REF isn't for one kind of person. Uh, it's supposed to be for every kind of person. That means we want to be a place that anyone from any personal background can come. We want to be a place uh, where anyone from any scene on campus can come and feel welcomed. And that means even if you're wrestling with Christianity or Jesus, uh, whether you feel like you're on the inside or the outside, whether you feel convinced or unconvinced, whether you feel like um, you're a believer or a spiritual skeptic, we're so glad you're here. We hope you feel welcomed. Um, and I especially want to welcome you if you're new or newish. I don't really know when that stops being new and when you start being a veteran. But basically, um, we really appreciate you taking the time and the risk to come on out to this. So thanks for coming. Um, well, we've been uh, talking about the life of Simon Peter uh, in, a, in a series I've been calling Stumbling into a Run talking about stumbling into a run. And although Simon Peter is more than a two-dimensional piece of glass, I would like to compare Simon Peter to a mirror and a window. Okay, So I think in some ways, Simon Peter is, this historical flesh-and-blood Peter is like a mirror. Okay, He's a mirror in which we see ourselves reflected back. Um, all of our strengths and stubbornness, all of our weaknesses and willingness to go. And Peter serves as this window, too. He sends a window through which we see the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of his church. Um, The church is also, by the way, called by Jesus his body. And this is like a stunning metaphor. Okay, but it actually even describes a spiritual connection. And the hope is in the next few weeks in particular that we can unpack that. Because we've spent the last several weeks talking about how Simon Peter um, looks upon Jesus' beauty. Um, first in these kind of meetings in person, the first few meetings when he's on, he seems to be like next to bodies of water when he meets Jesus, maybe because he's a fisherman. Um, but then we go, went all the way to the sort of last goodbye scene in John chapter 21, where Jesus restores him after he's denied, after Peter's denied him three times. And then, um, as I suggested last week, that last record of Simon Peter and Jesus physically on earth together is also a refreshing introduction to a new way that Jesus is going to meet his people, a new way that Jesus is going to show up through his Holy Spirit and through people like Peter and people like us in a setting even like this. That's that's sort of what we're going to talk about a little bit. But before we wade more deeply into the story of Peter um, and his work and the church, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this group of people, uh, fellows and students, um, and just thank you for the opportunity to sit under your word, um, to gaze at you, to try to see you, Jesus, high and lifted up. And I pray that you would be clear, that you would be um, persistent, 
that you would open the eyes of our hearts and me and Jesus, that you would be more believable and more beautiful. Um, we need to see you. Um, I, and I don't know where everyone is in this room, but all of us are hungry and thirsty. And whether we call it for you or whether we call it for something else, um, I pray that you'd feed us and that you'd, you'd give us um, yourself even uh, to drink spiritually. And I pray that you would nourish us in this moment and in this time and that you would meet us uh, where we are however much we want to be here and however much we don't want to be here, I pray that you'd even use that ambivalence and that you would um, embrace us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, like, one of my finest childhood moments occurred at Halloween several years ago. My best friend and I, Nick, we bought these matching monster masks that you cover over your head, okay? And they had, like, um, flashing red eyes that were, like, battery-powered. And um, they also had this hot pink lining inside that dyed my face completely pink. But that's another story. Mm-hmm. And we then we bought this giant, which I thought at the time was giant, but I actually wear this size now, extra large uh, sweatshirt. And um, we painted it with like red nail polish. And we put like scratch marks on the front because we thought that was really scary. And we bought these like gloves, these monster gloves. And then on Halloween, my friend Nick and I put on our matching monster masks. We got this giant sweatshirt, one arm, and each hole, and we were a two-headed monster. Um, and let's be honest, it was, we crushed the candy scene. It was a, it was a candy avalanche. Uh, Halloween, two times over, we went to two different neighborhoods. We were getting extra candy left and right from people who were impressed with our costume. It was a big day in our lives. Um, <laughs> But within a year of that highest, perhaps one of my highest uh, childhood moments, one of my lowest childhood moments occurred, and it happened also over my best friend Nick. Um, He invited me to go to a birthday party, his birthday party, um, as usual. We were good friends, uh, so that happened a fair amount, although we threatened that a lot back and forth, um, you know, based on our friendships not going well. Um, And as usual, it was going to be something of a big idea. Um, it had some sort. We talked about it a lot because that's what we did when we were kids, and we decided that um, it was not only going to be built up in our minds this time for weeks beforehand, but Nick had actually landed one of the two best 1980s birthday venues in Columbus, Ohio. You ready? A putt putt golf birthday. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, and because I know you're dying to know the other, the other birthday dream in 1980s Columbus, Ohio was roller skating at the United States of America. (laughs) Just think about that for a while. Um, Anyway, even with all the hype of Nick's imagination, uh, the promise of any color of the rainbow golf ball I wanted to use, um, sheet cake and pizza, and maybe, just maybe, the mascot, Mr. Putt-Putt himself, the giant, smiling, dimpled golf ball would come out and greet us at this birthday. Even with all of that, a large part of me did not want to go to Nick's birthday party. I was afraid of this new situation, and I didn't want to feel uncomfortable. I didn't want to feel uncomfortable socially or physically. And honestly, I still actually sometimes feel this way. I still, when I get asked to go out to things like parties, sometimes I don't really want to go because I feel really uncomfortable and I'm afraid of being uncomfortable. Okay. Now look, almost every time I end up going, I really end up really enjoying the party. And um, I'm glad I went, 
And those discomforts and those fears usually go away. Sometimes they don't, and those are unfortunate parties. Um, <laughs> but I usually feel fine. I feel totally myself, um, even when I was young, and especially as an adult. But that year, that less than a year since our two-headed costume cat candy avalanche machine, um, less than a year later, um, I let my fears and my discomfort win, and I stayed home. I did not go to my best friend's birthday putt-putt party. I remember meeting up with Nick a few weekends later, and I felt really bad, and I handed him my gift I had bought him already, uh, a retractable golf ball retriever. Uh, Nick was really into golf, and it was a great gift. Uh, and I remember looking down at, because he hit in the water a lot too. Anyway, um, I remember looking down at my feet when we were talking and looking away and kind of really struggling to make eye contact when he talked about how fun the party had been and that, yes, Mr. Putt-Putt had come and delivered the cake and the pizza. And this story relates to the life of Peter in Acts chapter 10 in two ways. <laughs> that seamless transition. <laughs> Man, how do I do this? Um, look, uh, first, starting this week, um, I'm intentionally turning our life of Peter's series into an, in an uncomfortable direction. We're going uncomfortable. I think the story of the early church in the scriptures moves this way. But I also think we're living in a cultural time and place that's afraid of discomfort. And as I confessed just a minute ago, I am right there with this cultural time and place, and I am afraid of being uncomfortable, too. And so, like, at a symptoms level, we see this discomfort play out um, in the echo chambers of information that we create. This is a metaphor that I'm going to run with, so <laughs> bear with me. We create these echo chambers where we tend to only read or listen to or hear out voices that we already agree with. I mean, for instance, when we do internet reading, we, the, the, the websites automatically create an RSS feed that caters and tailors information to my tastes and my opinions. And so I don't have to read the other view. We have intentionally partisan cable and radio news and so we can just continue to hear what we want to hear. In the words of one writer, we feel right now like a nation divided, both sides hating each other. And I would add that these divisions are not just political, because that's way too easy and way too reductionistic. Um, we need to actually discuss hard things like race and the church in America right now, um, because the Bible doesn't back down from discussing hard, divisive things like race and ethnicity in the church. And so instead of like reinforcing the walls of our ideological echo chambers by silence, we need to crack our echo chambers. We need to crack them by inviting voices that disagree with us, that are different than what you normally hear, that can be scary and uncomfortable. And that's the goal. For some of us, this is exactly why you come to RUF every once in a while. And we are so thankful that you're here. We hope you hear scripture's voice, which because it contains God's words to us, is going to be able to affirm and critique every cultural sensibility, even this culture's sensibility. For others of us, this is going to require a willingness to hear me out. Me, okay? A white, cisgendered, heterosexual, middle-aged male who proudly drives a maroon minivan and has three blonde children. <laughs> Now, I think that many of those labels are, um, to get academic with you, problematic. 
Okay, <laughs> look at that. Did I just like earn points? Um, but my point is that I'm going to talk about things like race um, in the Bible, outside of the Bible, because we, and I hope that you will get the opportunity to wrestle with and believe in a truth or truths that are bigger than your or my personal experience. We have to be able to do that. Um, otherwise, the conversation gets very limiting very fast. Okay, for still others of us, cracking your echo chamber is going to require re-examining recent events, like the killing of Trayvon Martin in Florida, or Michael Brown in Ferguson, or Keith Lamont Scott in Charlotte, or immigration, or trade, all in light of these same scriptures uh, in the context of the institutional church and by the very story that we're about to read, which is Acts chapter 10. And this leads to the second and primary reason for all this. Acts chapter 10 tells us that Peter's fear of discomfort talks about that, right? You see his fear real viscerally, okay? And by Jesus' spirit, Peter's willingness to risk messing up. I love this. You get to see Peter willing to risk messing up and risk getting called out by people he's kind of afraid of. Our passage tonight pushes us in that same direction, okay? By Jesus' spirit, we can move. I can move from my fear, my social, emotional, physical discomfort, my fear of discomfort, into a bold love. And so my encouragement is that I think this passage is helping us by Jesus' spirit to move from our fears of discomfort into bold love. Okay? So everyone tracking so far? I just talked about echo chambers. We're still, we're still going there. Um, so anyway, Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 23, verses 34 through 48, invite us again to walk with Peter. Okay? There's an invitation to wade into the mess, the messy method that the way things are actually radically changes. So we're going to look at the way that things as they are change. Okay, and this is what it looks like in this, in Joppa, okay, in the first century. And we're going to examine this shift in Peter, in our perspective, in four, four, <laughs> rapid fire scenes, okay? <laughs> By the way, guys, two weeks ago, I tried to do four points, bailed to three. This is a really big accomplishment for me. Okay, First, verses 9 through 16, the Holy Spirit reorients us by describing the way things were and, sadly, the way things still sometimes are. Okay, we see that in verses 9 through 16. Verses 17 through 23, the Spirit reorients us, okay, by describing how things become new now by actions. Okay? And then verses 34 through 44, the Spirit reorients us by describing how things become new now by words. And fourth, and finally, verses 44 through 48, the Spirit reorients us by describing the way things are and the way things one day will be. Okay, so that's what we're doing. Um, I was talking to Jonathan Ferguson about this, and this is unintentional, but there are echoes in the parentheses. Just saying. Um, that was Jonathan's observation, not mine. Uh, but, you know, beautiful. So let's keep cracking that echo chamber. Okay, so find points on your handout there. You can see the verses uh, one through the verses and also points one through four. All right, look, to understand the way things were for Peter in these first few verses, we need to fill in the gaps, okay? We need to fill in the gaps between that like place where we left Peter last week and John chapter 1 and the final resurrection appearance of Jesus that we get recorded in Scripture 
to this moment with at, on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner's house in chapter 10 of Acts? Like, how do we get here? Look, I would love to, like, kind of just verse by verse, carefully sift through the first nine chapters of Acts. Uh, it's four-point sermon. Okay, I'm already, I'm already behind the ball. So what we're going to do instead is I'm going to give you some highlights uh, of the just maybe some wonderful snapshots of the way that Simon Peter grows more and more into being himself on purpose. Okay, he's, tr- he's becoming more and more himself on purpose, which is actually really hard to do. And he settles more and more into becoming the rock that Jesus called him to be. So much so that the author no longer calls him Simon or Simon's son of John. He started to call exclusively by his nickname, Peter, which means the rock in Greek. Um, and so here's a few vignettes of the, or snapshots of the rock in action. Okay, Acts chapter 2. Amid like tons of people speaking lots of different languages, also known as tongues, Peter the Rock preaches a sermon, okay, that converts, that leads three thousand Jewish people to believe in Jesus. Three thousand, just you know, just an average night in RUF at Davidson. Okay, <laughs> so Peter boldly, you see the laughter, like that was okay. Anyway, um, I'm just gonna keep in that awkwardness. Okay, so. Peter boldly endures trials and jails, uh, jail time in Acts 3 through 5. He performs miracles in Acts chapter 5 through 9. They're very cool. Um, only again to participate in the advance of the gospel from Judea and Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 all the way to Samaria, north, the people north of Jerusalem and Judea. They were kind of partially Jew and partially non-Jew, which is called Gentile. Okay, so Samaritans were a mixed heritage. And that's the people in Acts 8 that all of a sudden become Christian. So the, gospels, the gospel message of Jesus is slowly advancing. It's going from Judea and Jerusalem to Samaria okay, in chapter 8. So that's the context. And so the context of Acts chapter 10 is Peter is increasingly getting some guts, some intestinal fortitude, okay, and he's also fulfilling the promise that Jesus lays out in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is this. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, that's what's going on. By the time we reconnect with Peter in verses 9 through 10, he is uh, staying at Simon the Tanner's house, which is 30 miles south of Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. Um, it had a gate, so it must have been a pretty big house. It has a nice rooftop, rooftop apparently, for praying. And so he would have, like, I, I just want you to kind of get a picture of what's going on emotionally for Peter. He would have been, this would have been a boldly missions-minded move. He would have been, like, thinking of himself as very socially progressive at this point. Okay? A tanner handled blood and dead animal carcasses for a living in order to make leather, right? And by definition, according to Old Testament law, was unclean. And his house where he did his business was completely unclean. And so Peter is sitting in residence in an unclean place, Okay, and he's really pushing the religious envelope. You've got to see this. Okay, already he's pushing the religious envelope um, for Jewish Christians in particular, and he could do this because Jesus declared clean and unclean laws uh, no longer. He declared an end to them. He did this by completely ignoring them in his perfect sinlessness. He said, "I'm not going to abide by them. They don't matter." Okay, he also did it by dying as an unclean curse on the cross. 
so that everyone who believes in him can become a clean person. That is righteous. Okay, so that's all taken care of. And so at noon, when Peter goes to pray, we can imagine he feels this mix of emotions, right? Let's get there with him. Peter feels maybe a little weary. You know, there's been some spiritual discomfort. He's being kind of edgy. But then there's also this like bodily revulsion. He's staying with a tanner, which smells really bad. Okay, it smells like long dead animals and tannic acid. Okay, it's gross. And so maybe he's fleeing to the roof to get some fresh air. Okay, also he might have felt like this kind of prideful self-congratulations. After all, he's overcoming inherited prejudices. He's paving the way for open-minded freedom. And that's the self-congratulatory backstory to, that makes verses 11 through 16 so interesting, right? Okay, there he is. Peter is thinking he is beyond all that clean and unclean business, right? When all the wrong kinds of food drop from the heavens, suspended midair on a parachute giant-sized picnic blanket, and a heavenly voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Like, we might expect the newly progressive Pete to dig in. After all, he's hungry. That's what the, the verses 9 and 10 make that very clear. Lots of references to hungry in real time. Okay, but instead, Peter digs his heels in two separate times. Two times he says, in his only Peter fashion, no to Lord Jesus. Okay, he says, no, by no means. And he pleads, of all things, the irony, his purity. He's staying in a tanner's house. Okay? And he says, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. God again confronts Peter's denial three separate times. You've got to see that God loves symmetry, and he loves the number three with Peter. Okay? And he ends it with a statement of fact that actually still eviscerates prejudice to this day, I think. It goes like this. What God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. What God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. And like, look, I really, the whole point of this is to make us pause a little bit. I hope this description of Peter makes us pause. Especially in our most self-congratulations filled moments. Okay. You see, the problem with prejudice is by definition, it's so hard to see in ourselves. And it often happens most severely when we feel the most smugly open-minded. Look, in a semi-recent attempt to crack my own echo chamber, I read a book by ta Coates called Between the World and Me. It's a memoir about what it felt like and feels like to grow up and live as an African-American in the United States in the 21st century. Uh, ta Coates like writes very eloquently about the way black boys and black girls are raised to be twice as good and to expect half as much as their white peers. And the way he writes that one must be without error here to walk in single file, to work quietly, to pack an extra number two pencil, to make no mistakes. And then there's this telling line that Tanasi Coates drops. And it pokes at the often silent requirement for perfection in the midst of civil rights. And this is the line. Not all of us can always be Jackie Robinson that first African-American to play Major League Baseball. Not all of us can always be Jackie Robinson. Not even Jackie Robinson was always Jackie Robinson. Here's what ta Chris is getting at. 
There's this unconscious bias in America that expects financial and behavioral perfection for some people, for the people who are generally or historically lower class and black, okay? And, but gives a number of second chances for other people, generally and historically middle to upper class and white. But this perfectionism, okay, that many white and maybe well-off students have received or learned and self-imposed, okay, that perfectionism is actually a prejudice, is an unfair prejudice. It's something by definition that's so hard to see in our society and ourselves. And it's especially hard to see when we're convinced that we don't have prejudices or biases, okay? But here's what I really appreciate about our passage tonight. It gives us the hope to change, to change our world and to change and to be changed in ourselves. And we see this hope beginning in verses 17 through 23 in my second point, okay? How things are becoming new by actions. So if you look there with me. So like immediately after his vision, Peter is inwardly perplexed, right? He's greatly puzzled. This is a feeling that maybe some of you have right now after my little uh, talk about prejudice, okay? Maybe you're feeling that right now. But notice how God won't let Peter settle. God won't let Peter return back to normal, okay? Verses 17 through 18 tell us right then that messengers from Cornelius showed up and they asked for Peter by name. Do you see that? So he's in the middle of being really, really confused. And according to verse 22, Cornelius is this centurion. He's upright. He's God-fearing. He was well-spoken by the whole Jewish nation and who was directed by a holy angel to send for Peter to come to his house to hear what he said. That is like, so who is asking for Peter in this perplexed moment? It's Cornelius, a Roman military officer over 100 people stationed in Caesarea, probably to keep the Roman peace, Pax Romana. However, while Cornelius is in this military station, in this Caesarea, he becomes like intensely drawn to Jewish religion, to the God of the Bible. And he refused, he got so interested in it that he started serving this God, but then at the last kind of minute, he becomes what's technically called a God-fearer because he refuses to get circumcised and become Jewish. Okay? Listen to how one commentator, Tom Wright, describes it. Okay? Someone who, this is Cornelius, was someone who has been on the outside of Judaism, but pressing his nose hard against the window to look in. One who respected and valued Jewish traditions and was doing his best to honor the God of Israel as far as normal limits permitted. And so this Cornelius sends his servants and his soldier to Peter because, look, Cornelius didn't want God or Peter just to tolerate him. He wanted to be welcomed. He wanted to be forgiven. He wanted to be healed. He wanted to be transformed. And to borrow that image, I love that image from uh, Tom Wright, okay, where it wasn't enough for Cornelius to stay on the outside looking in, to press his nose against the glass, to stay as he was. Cornelius wanted to be on the inside. He wanted to be with God. He wanted to be as God wanted him to be. And perhaps that image of a kid pressing his nose against a display window case describes how you feel about God right now. Or maybe about the church. If that's the case, I want you to look at the way that God does welcome folks like you and like Cornelius in. And he simply does a very simple, he does a very simple thing. Jesus tells one of his followers, Peter, to get up 
and open the department store door even after hours. Okay? And this is what it looks like in verse 20. Accompany them without hesitation, or perhaps better translated, accompany them, these people, without any misgivings or ethnic distinctions. Okay? He's saying to Peter, get up and go with them without hesitation, without misgivings, without ethnic distinction. And verse 23 tells us that Peter did just that. It's cut off on your handout, but the second part tells us that he not only invited them in to be guests, but then the next day he rose and he went away with the people to Cornelius' house. Okay, so Peter's doing like the completely unthinkable, the previously completely unthinkable. He is hosting, then traveling with unclean, non-Jewish Gentiles. He's begun to welcome estranged strangers into the family of God. We tracking so far? Okay. Because this is really important. Because an action or a gesture like this is really courageous and really means a lot. Let me give you another example from the same Jackie Robinson mentioned by Tanasi Coates and the first kind of African American to play Major League Baseball. Okay. So during that first season, Robinson had a really tough time. He gets booed. He gets jeered everywhere he goes with racial slurs oftentimes. And in his first ever road game in Cincinnati, the normal jeering that Robinson feels is completely overwhelming. Okay, it gets worse and worse. He makes a couple of fielding errors. He's playing second base. The crowd all stands together and in unison starts booing Robinson all at once. Okay, and Jackie Robinson is getting yelled at by thousands and thousands of people. Okay, and just then, the shortstop a white man and a teammate of Robinson's named Pee Wee Reese comes over to him, talks to him, puts his arm around him, and he just stands there. Stands there until the crowd begins to quiet down. Jackie Robinson would later say, that arm around my shoulder saved my life. That arm around my shoulder saved my life. That moment in 1940, when Pee Wee Reese risked everything that most Major League Baseball players absolutely were playing for. He risked his spot on the roster, his reputation, the fans' adoration, his social status, okay? And Reese did that to assure that Jackie Robinson felt that he had a place in the family, to help Jackie Robinson move on the inside of the glass. You see, Reese was willing to mess up. He was willing to get called out and make a mistake and people to be angry at him and uncomfortable in order that Robinson could be called into something more even when he messed up over and over again in the field. And that's our invitation through Peter, isn't it? To welcome, to reach an arm out and stand by people not like us or to receive an arm when we need one. It doesn't matter who they're from. It doesn't matter what they're into. You see, things become new. Jesus calls us by his spirit to something more than the two questions that we ask everyone to get to know who they are. What are they? Where do you come from? What do you do for a living? Or what's your major? Okay, that is, who are you from? What are you into? So where on campus, like what social scene feels shut out from you and your friends? 
And what would it look like to rise up, go down there, probably down there, okay, without misgivings and distinctions? Or what would it look like on the other side to press your nose against the glass and ask for help? But it's not only actions that make things new. We see in verses 34 through 44, it's also words. That's point three. In these verses, Peter gives Cornelius what he sent for, to hear what you have to say, verse 22, to hear who Jesus is and what he's all about, what he's done. And like this amazing sermon so far, Peter's sermon is four points. (laughs) Amazing, okay? Point number one, God's plan has come. He's here, verses 34 through 36. Great outline, too. I wonder if you put it in the handout. Number two, Jesus lived, died, and rose again, verses 37 through 42. Number three, Jesus was predicted hundreds to thousands of years ago by the Old Testament writers, verse 43. And point four, interrupted by the Holy Spirit. We can only hope Um, for us. Okay, so the burden of Peter's sermon is this, right? It's captured by the beginning and the ending. Those four points come down to one idea. God shows no partiality that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Okay, God shows no partiality that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins in his or through his Jesus' name. Here's what Peter is saying. God is not like us. Most, not like most of us most of the time. God is not harboring prejudices against other people based on who they're from and what they're into. What matters to God is who, uh, is who thinks and feels that he can forgive sins. It matters to God is do we believe that we can remove the prejudices, the fears, the silence, the internal violence? Do we think that we can remove them or do we think that God has to? That's what matters to God. Okay? Is it more education? Is it more political power? Is it better self-effort? and instructions to be better? Yes, of course social action matters, but what if we also started at the same time with where we are? Do we believe that God's able to melt the deep-seated ice on our insides? Will Jesus warm the hard-to-see cold spots inside of us? That's the question, right? And that question leads us to point four, okay? Which in verse 44 we read, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And this gift of the Holy Spirit is accompanied by multiple spoken languages, tongues, many baptisms, extolling the Lord, and some days of teaching a Christian community. Okay, this should sound really familiar. I know I just gave you snapshots, but this should sound super familiar because you saw this exact same thing with a different people group two times over earlier in Acts. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8. We see the gospel message goes forth about Jesus in Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria, and it's accompanied by all of these things. And so Acts chapter 10 represents the message going to the ends of the earth. Okay, Because Cornelius was a Gentile. He was a non-Jew who was representing officially Rome, which at that point was controlling the, the, the ends of the earth that were known or close to them at least, okay? And here we see a picture, very brief, just one household of the way things are. The way things 
are the way things they should be one fine day. That's what we're after. That's what we see. And like, it's so amazing to think that God reaches the entire world this way. I mean, I could have thought of a lot of better ways, I think, right? That's my problem. (laughs) Okay, I think there's a lot of different ways. But look what he does. He uses such seemingly insignificant actions. He uses such small, tiny words. And yet, so much happens. So much changes. And I think uh, I'm going to end with this illustration because I think what Frederick Buechner here is doing is he's taking these thoughts into mind and he's mulling them over. And what he, he does this really interesting thing. Frederick Buechner's a, a favorite of mine. You hear him a lot. But he reimagines this powerful moment in 1957. Okay, That's seven years after Jackie Robinson's moment in Cincinnati. That's three years after the board, uh, um, Brown versus the Board of Education decision, 1954. In 1957, a little black boy mounts a staircase to a newly desegregated elementary school in Little Rock, Arkansas. Okay, so maybe you've seen pictures of this, maybe you've seen film of this. And so Beekner asks, what, in, what if instead of the, the lines of lawyers and military troops, what if this little black boy reached up his little small hand and he found the warm palm of the World War II war hero and sitting president, Dwight Eisenhower? What if Dwight Eisenhower took that little boy's hand and walked him up those steps? What if Dwight Eisenhower cast a warm smile on him What if Dwight Eisenhower took him and escorted him to that doorway that was being blocked by frowning local authorities? This is what Buechner wonders aloud. It's heartbreaking to think of the opportunity missed. The Little Rock schools were desegregated in the end by a combination of legal processes and armed force. But it was done without some gesture of courtesy, without contrition, without compassion. And all of these might have captured the imagination of the world. A gospel gesture might have made people of different races look at each other with less resentment and less guilt. A gospel word might have melted our fears of discomfort and warmed those left out in the cold too long to feel their way to God, to feel their way to others to feel their way to the other side, the dark side of themselves. And yet, here's the beautiful news of this passage. The God of the universe, even in Jesus, did what Eisenhower failed to do. He didn't just do a gesture or a word, but in his life and his death and his resurrection, he took us by the hand where we are, and he faced the local authorities who were frowning, and he put them to shame in Colossians chapter 2. Amazing. Amazing. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for this time. Thank you for your words to us. Um, It is a dense, complicated passage, and I'm so thankful that we get to look at it, we get to see the way that your gospel courses, the way that your message cannot be contained, and the way that your message, um, which starts so meek and mild, ends up roaring like a lion. And I pray that you help us never to forget the sound of that roar. May it reverberate in the hearts and the minds of everyone here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.